0: Welcome back folks. Hey, have you ever had a challenge getting qualified for financing for a property? Have you ever just kind of run up against the big banks and bash your heads against that seemingly never-ending changing of rules and regulations? Well, today we got a special treat because today's guest is not only a real estate entrepreneur himself, he is also a mortgage broker. So he's going to be able to shed some light on what we need to be doing to get more money for our deal. So welcome to the call, Mr. Keaton Kirkwood. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, man. So we were talking a little bit off camera that you were a mortgage broker first before you got into real estate investing. So tell us a little bit about what sparked you to to make that leap. Because most of the mortgage brokers I know are not real estate investors. So being a a mortgage broker and an investor at the same time, Is a little bit different. How did that happen, Keaton?
1: So it was kind of tied hand in hand. I worked in the oil and gas industry, transitioned to sales. And then when I was 24, I got into, I got a job with the mortgage team and quickly worked my way up. But they, that small team, worked with the Real Estate Investment Network, Keyspire, Real Estate Action Group, and dozens of smaller groups. So about 75% of their client base were real estate investors. So I just got pulled right into the deep end. The owner of the team was a real estate investor himself. Uh, Part of the job and training was that I got to go to all these different events for free. And uh, over five years, I just really immersed myself into it. And
0: you got inspired. uh, yeah. Yeah. So it
1: was a nice little real estate investing was work for me. So I had that lucky. What a lot of investors look for is how can I learn and make money? And I was able to do it in a way that wasn't wholesaling or doing kind of creative deals, but rather being one of the professionals in the transactions.
0: Very cool. So just out of curiosity, what kind of deals did you get into right off the get-go? What what kind of properties did you start off investing in?
1: So I'm going to be blunt. I was 24 making $17.50 an hour as a contractor in overtime. I was not flush with cash. Yeah. The first thing I learned about was joint ventures, but I saw, I witnessed, I helped all sorts of situations in the joint venture side. And I saw that they don't always go well. So mm. the first thing I promised myself was that I'd wait at least 3 years in the industry before I started doing JVs cuz I realized very quickly that in the in the real estate investing world we all feel like we started late. I started at 24 and oh my god why didn't I know this at 18? But then I was also seeing people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, maybe even 70s feeling the same way. Yeah. So I was like okay, first thing I do slow down. I don't know what I don't know. So I actually picked up two pre-sale contracts. I flipped one for a quick 7,500 bucks and then I kept the other one and assigned it right before closing. So those were my very first dip a toe into the real estate investing world.
0: Well, I'm that that opened up a whole other can of worms for me here, my friend, because if if you were seeing all sorts of challenges with doing joint ventures, working hands-on with these real estate investors and their joint venture partners, however that looked, what were some of the big, Challenges that you kind of saw coming up over and over again. Is there anything, any kind of rules of thumb that that we can look at to avoid those kind of things?
1: Well, for sure. I think the biggest one is that people are lazy on their joint venture or shareholders agreements. So, joint venture agreement being personal side, shareholder agreement being basically a corporate JV. Yeah, that was the biggest one. We'd see people scrimp. They wouldn't cover things like what if someone died, what if there was a divorce, what if there was cash calls often there would be, oh, we'll split the cost 50-50, but it wasn't dictated how and when there were, so we'd see uh, one spat we saw was the working partner said to the cash partner, oh, well, you need to cover all the shortfalls and I'll reimburse you at the end of the year. Oh, okay, yeah. I can see that causing a little kerfuffle. Oh, for sure. So yeah. I, I think that that was the big one. The the other two common issues were one, newer investors jumping straight to JVing because it's it is the fast track. It is the yeah. no money, no skills, No problem. You know, just do a JV, right? (laughs) A lot of people treat it like that. And I think you and I know it's a mistake, but we saw a lot of that where just people, they thought it was a good deal, but it wasn't. Or it relied on one linchpin of market goes up or something positive Mm -hmm. happens. And if that didn't happen, the shit was a crappy deal. Yeah. Um, And the last piece that I would say is most common was we would see cash partners get involved with middling working partners who had a moderate size portfolio and they were very high risk, high growth, but the the cash partners learned really quickly that the strength of their partner was the strength of that person's portfolio. So often if three deals out of 10 started to really go bad, it would bleed over, whether into the psychology of it and the interaction or the monetary. So those were the three main things I saw, but the, the one that caught people off guard most was the idea that when you marry a working partner, you marry their portfolio in a way maybe not officially, maybe not directly, but at the end of the day, if they're short a million dollars and they're being sued, their behavior will be very different than if they've got no problems in the world
0: financially. Right. Good points, Keaton. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. All right. So you decided to kind of go slow. Your first couple of deals were basically pre-construction assignment type deals. Then where where did you go after that?
1: So after that, I dipped a toe into private lending, did some prom notes, discovered that while they can be lucrative, I'm a believer of take the minimal risks you can to reach your goals. I think there's two real approaches. There's kind of the, I call it the American style, forgive me, but- (laughs) We we got a few Americans listening, but they won't take offense. That's all right. But just very, very high risk, high reward with the idea that if you start young enough, you can fail, learn from your mistakes, rebuild, try again, fail again. Just don't screw up the third time. You're still going to hit it the same time as the person who went slow. Yeah. And then there's the more the route I prefer, which is, okay, if you've got 25 years, 30 years, like except you're going to spend that time working in that direction, but how do you keep it as consistent and steady and low risk as possible? Because very quickly, many real estate investors learn it can be stressful and it can mm-hmm. affect your family, your spouses, your friends. So i much lean towards that more cautious route. And I think part of that might be the professional side where, when people screw it all up, I have to I have to deal with the crying phone calls, the the worries, the the desperation, looking for solutions, and it hurts. It, it's hard. I've seen the toll of it, and it's not common, but it does happen. So, but I lean towards more of that consistent side. So what does that mean? So personally, I like to just buy kind of long term real estate. I've my next so after the pro- private lending, the prom note stuff. Went well, got my money back. but realized, hey, you know what? I had very little control on this. And I'll share a tidbit with everybody. So I learned that if you have a prom note that has a right to register a second mortgage on a property listed, that's great. You have the legal right to do it. The problem is it's not enforceable unless you already have the mortgage document signed before you lend the money. Mm. Otherwise, in the situation I ended up in, I had to go back to the borrower and say, hey, I'm triggering the second second position mortgage clause. I need you to kindly sign the documents. (laughs) Now, fortunately, good relationship, good person. They did. But I realized like, oh, crap. Like I was in a position where if they just said, nah, I lost that ability to register, which was a big piece of my comfort. Right. So you you learn that the waters can be deeper than they appear. You can do the right steps, but not necessarily be able to take the actions that you hope they can lead to.
0: So I'm guessing, and correct me if I'm wrong, Keaton, you might have seen a few other People's promissory notes go sideways because because of this kind of a situation. Is that correct, or are
1: we just kind of real prom yeah. notes? Now, in my case, I'm very big on just because, like in this case, we made a thirty-five thousand dollar profit on a fifty thousand dollar loan in eighteen months. It was great. It was lucrative. The money was there. I just didn't like the lack of control I had and the realization that for whatever reason, if this went sideways it might be, I might get my money back, but it might be a five-year thing. And just, right. I, I like the control and the consistency. So that led to kind of the next stage, which is I did my first two joint ventures in a corporate structure. We bought duplexes and bird them to fourplexes. So one was technically a failed build, but we'll call it a bird. Yeah. The second one was an older seventies duplex that we bird into a legal fourplex. So we've got two legal fourplexes right now, but in my evolution of real estate that I realized that the cash flow is great on fourplexes, but there are soft costs that are hard to track. Like as what? an example, you tend to have a higher tenant turnover in these fourplexes. Just it's more transient tenants. Who's going to stay in the basement of a fourplex? Like it's right. probably not lifelong tenants. So then you look at your lease up costs. You budget in your. So that was what actually got us was utilities ended up being higher than we expected, mainly because of them going up, and the just soft costs of leasing up. So, so budgeted-
0: utilities. You were covering the costs of utilities and within the rent, I guess.
1: Yes. Um, The problem with the fourplexes we have is that they're each the left and right are metered, but the up and down are not separate. Mm. So then you face the issue of do you let the tenants fight it out or do you collect fees and then deal with it? But the problem is that utilities have just risen so quickly that your your fees don't hold a candle to it. And technically we can go back and shake down our tenants, but It's it's just not worth the headache and, you know.
0: So. Got it. Got it. All right, so the soft costs, got it. So, moving ahead, what are you planning on looking at next with your real estate journey?
1: So, two things. One, we snagged 10 acres and it's kind of on the edge of I learned the largest hamlet in the world, <laughs> which I didn't realize that a hamlet could have 70,000 people in it, but we're outside of a community called Sherwood Park. Uh-huh. So, we picked up there was areas rezoned for townhouses. And then the area we bought in was in that zoning and then kicked out. So it works for us. We bought a property that's 10 acres that for the price of a condo in Vancouver, Toronto. Yeah. That we can see ourselves living in for 50 years. So we kind of it is that owner-occupied side. But being an investor, I couldn't resist like where can I have the option to have a real estate investing exit, which would be subdividing. Um, so that's kind of the owner-occupied trying to make sure that there's multiple wins there. So so but, it looks
0: quite possible to get it back into being subdividable you got quite sure
1: we could for sure break it into four two and a half acre lots and put houses okay. on it yeah but you know you have a house on it you have to tear that house down there's certain infrastructure there that like a well and whatnot yeah. i don't know if it would be financially beneficial enough to be able to convince my wife to move yeah. um but if eventually it gets kicked into the townhouse zoning you know you can put a lot of townhouses on 10 acres so there's more possibility there
0: Yeah, so it's kind of a land banking play for you then.
1: Yeah, we want to stay here. My worst nightmare living out here where it's quiet would be that townhouses roll in. So, or that just, you know, the density goes through the roof. Then we'd probably sell and move a little further out. But I'm a believer that if you can build in extra exit strategies, even if they are a bit of a call to Hail Mary, in our case, this is a pretty direct connection. But if you can buy a property that has seven potential outcomes that are positive for you, I would argue that that's all other things being equal, better than a property with three positive outcomes.
0: Oh, most definitely. So that's kind of
1: the philosophy I use. Um, And then on the personal investing side, so outside of kind of hedging my primary residence, um, we are looking for side-by-side duplexes with no suites. I've discovered that my dream property is not a fourplex, but rather a side-by-side duplex with long-term tenants.
0: Interesting. So purpose built from the ground up or, or what?
1: Mm, It's a tricky one. The purpose built might be a necessity just because surprisingly a side-by-side duplex is hard to find. Mm -hmm. They exist, but we're finding their few. The thing is I want them on a single title. I don't want a half duplex. I want two units on a single title to maximize my qualifying so that I can ideally get 18 units or so. Mm -hmm. Um, I figured that that's enough that I can build a good pension for myself and estate planning for my kids. There's ways that you can use certain insurance products to make sure that when you pass on and the CRA wants their pound of flesh, it's dealt with. Yeah. So doing a lot of planning on that side, but I might be willing to deal with four and tenant turnover, but I know that my if something were to happen to me, my wife wouldn't be and my kids probably won't be. So leaning towards what makes sense as an investor fundamentally, but has an ease of ownership. The idea that if you get a good side-by-side duplex, maybe next to schools, transit, whatever it may be, hopefully you can put two families in there. You've got a left and right dynamic rather than an up and down dynamic so that there's less likely to be issues. Separate garbage, so there's no squabbles over that. Worst case, you put a fence right down the middle and they've got a concrete wall in between them. So very minimal sound transfer. And the idea that even if the purchase price to rent ratio is a little bit weaker, if I can st- if I can play my cards correctly, I can aim to have tenants in there for five to 10 years. And unlike Ontario and BC, there's no rent controls in Alberta. Right. So it's not as punitive to have a tenant there long term. And you and I have probably experienced it, like the cost of flooring, paint. There's a lot of costs that are hidden when tenants come and go. So the idea, yes, at a surface level, maybe the numbers make less sense. But I'm fortunate enough that if I have to put 25% down to make the numbers okay, then okay. It is what it is. I'm 32. I've got enough of a timeline. I don't need to try to rush this. So the idea of, Hey, where can I minimize these costs that you miss up front? And then when you own it you're like, why isn't it as good as the realtor told me you uh, you figure out very quickly. So
0: very interesting, Keaton. I, I, I like, you are a very logical person. I like where you're thinking down there. And I'm, sure that you've already considered this, but why the idea of, how many of these did you want to have? You want to have nine of these, 18 units all together? Is that what you're no, I couldn't get away
1: with less, but. Yeah.
0: So why that idea versus a small multifamily type property?
1: So the challenge in multifamily, um, if cap rates increase due to rising rates, as an example, you could watch four or $500,000 a year value evaporate very quickly. Uh, due to the multiplier effect in reverse, the multifamily is susceptible to cash calls from lenders if you're, for whatever reason, you carry a period of vacancy or um, you have your rents drop, interest rates rise, utility costs go up. If your net operating income drops below the DCR the lender wants to see, they do audit your financials every year. So, I guess the best way to put it summarized is that. If you properly maintain and have contingencies for your portfolio of residential properties, they are more resilient to bad periods, whereas multifamily has a lender looming over it till the debt's paid off. Mm. The other aspect is it's a lot. Let's just say you've got a $10 million multifamily building versus $10 million units for simplicity sake, $10 million houses. It's easier for whatever reason, if you have to, you could sell two or three of those houses, still maintain some of your portfolio. Whereas multifamily tends to be a little more all or nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my experience with clients, the cash calls tend to be mind-numbing sometimes. So I've yeah, seen right. investors, I've. it's relatively rare to see an investor who buys a home or a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex lose six figures. It happens, but relatively rare. There's, uh, for the number of times I've seen it happen, 10 times as often I see it happen in the multifamily side. And I think That's part of that thing. is that the risk and the reward is higher in multifamily. It's like swimming in a lake with the residential investing side. You know, you have to worry about cold water, boats, the wind maybe, but there, there's not a lot of threats. The moment you go into multifamily, it's like swimming in the ocean. There's all of those other things, the, the, but there's also rip tides. There's currents, you know, weather conditions, <laughs> sharks. <laughs> So yeah, I, I just, I personally, I'm a simple investor. I find residential much easier to measure and manage. The multifamily side, I think, requires a more complex skill set, a more intimate knowledge of maintenance, economic life, how buildings run. It just, yeah, so that's my thought process. No, it's,
0: it's interesting. I'm just, because I can tell you're a very analytical, thoughtful kind of person. So I, I, I assumed, and I was right, that you'd put a lot of thought into this and it wasn't just based on emotion it's based on your strengths your preferences what you've seen other people go through because you're one of those sharp guys that pays very close attention to what other people are doing and have done and and you learn from their rough experiences so yeah i like that idea that that makes a lot of sense you're spreading out the risk over multiple properties. You're not locked into one thing. Of course, there's the pros and cons to, to to everything, but that does make a lot of sense having that. If you need cash, it's a lot easier to sell a duplex. Well,
1: and particular. personally, I believe the demand for semi, the, the, what I like about the half duplexes is your rents are a little bit lower than a detached house. Yeah. So there there isn't a few, If the economy struggles, people get tight on money, you can still offer the most of what they want with a bit of a cut on the cost as a half duplex is not going to rent the same as a detached house. Right. But I feel like there's more demand to live in or own that than there is to live in a purpose built rental building. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, if if we go to our kids or whoever and say, would you rather live in the apartment with 12 other people or do you want to live in the, you know, basically half a house? With a concrete wall and blowing.
0: with your own yard and the whole bit. yeah.
1: And, and that's kind of my thought process. I believe personally that it's likely that we will see better appreciation on those detached units. No multiplier effect and cap rates. I could be totally wrong, but I feel it's a safer bet. It's probably the better yeah. way to put it. And I'm not looking for home runs. I want to hit first and second bases.
0: Yeah. I mean, and you're into this for the long term. And the goal is, if I'm, if I think probably is to end up with nine or 10 properties that are free and clear that your spouse and your kids don't have, you know, that that's the long-term plan. Would that be for me,
1: hypothetically, nine properties over 30 years, Mm -hmm. maybe that takes me $900,000. I have to earn and buy, but fortunately as a broker I'm incorporated and I am self-employed so I can scale my income if I need to Mm -hmm. might not be easy, but it's possible. Right. And the idea that if I do that, maybe it costs me half duplexes, let's just call them 500 grand a piece, that's four and a half million dollars of real estate. In 30 to 40 years, pretty reasonable to be worth 10 million bucks, let's say. Oh yeah, definitely. If it rents for $3,000 per times nine, that's 27,000. My Monday holiday math is right. 27 times 12, relatively big number. But the idea that that rent will likely double in 30 years, let's say. And very, if they're paid off, conservative consistently yeah, count exactly. on, it's enough. I, and I find that a lot of investors are shooting for two hundred million, even though they only want thirty. I, I try to practice what I preach. Keep your risk as low as you can while you overshoot what you need, but conservatively so. You know if, yeah. the, if the odds that you go for two hundred million mean that you'll fail three times as much, you got to ask yourself if it's worth it. But at least in my personal case, if I can keep that risk lower and have good quality of life and less stress. Personally, that makes me happier, but I'm a bit of a stress case, so. <laughs>
0: no, I like, here's what I like about it, Keaton. Um, I like that you've got a very vivid picture of exactly what you want, how many of these properties you want, the time frame you want to get them in, what you're going to do with them, and why. I mean, all of that is just the fundamentals for success right there. So many people, myself included, for a lot of time, you know, you're distracted by all of these different opportunities, all of these different things, possibilities. You've got laser focus, and that is that's the key. Well,
1: I, I have the benefit of I do this with investors for a living, right? Okay, so it's well,
0: that's a huge benefit.
1: But you pay it, attention. It, right? If you no don't practice what you preach, you should be in trouble. But one thing I, I chuckled to myself about you mentioned earlier that I'm a very logical investor, and I think the alternative is an emotional investor. I I hope there are not many emotional investors out there because you'd be, you'd be surprised.
0: (laughs) They they might all last very long, but there's a lot of them out there. Awesome. Keaton. So for folks that uh, say, Hey, this guy's a sharp cookie and they want to get in touch with you. What's the best way for them to do that? How can they find out about all things Keaton Kirkwood?
1: I'd say two easy ways to reach me. One is Facebook Keaton Kirkwood. Uh, I believe my profile picture is me holding my wife at our wedding. Um you should reach, feel free to reach out on Facebook or our websites ww.kbmortgages with an
0: Perfect. Keaton, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for being on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: All right, everybody. Take care and we'll talk to you on the next episode.